0: This morning is uh, very, very special for me. Um, my really, really good friend, he became my good friend. Dave Lomas is here. Dave planted and started the church up in San Francisco, uh, Reality San Francisco. He's been the pastor there for how old, is It 12 years now? Dang, 12 years. You're all grown up. I just say that because when I, when I came back, Dave made this video on my I call it my inauguration day. I solemnly swear. But Dave said I aged out of reality. So this is just my feedback now. Dave has become an amazing friend, and I want him to be an important voice for our family and our community as well. And as I shared a little bit with prayer time this morning, when I went to reality to work there, I really thought, Mike was like, well, they need me. So I went there to help. I no, had no idea how much I needed them and how much I needed Dave in my life to help me navigate some really interesting times in my life. So I'm just really excited to have Dave here this morning to teach to us through Mark chapter four. You can turn. So Dave, come on up, and uh, we're excited to hear from you this morning. Thank you, friend. Don't be bad.
1: I will not. I will not. I uh, t- for the record, I didn't say that Dale aged out. I said the rumors were. Dale was aging out, but I wanted to squash those rumors. <laughs> he was not aging out. Um, yeah, it's really, really good to be here this morning. Um, we, we talk about Dale all the time. Um, as a staff, we miss him as a church dearly. You allow him to come. Uh, I don't know if he even asked permission. Probably we should talk about that. I don't know if you, but he comes up still a few times a year to our church. And um, yeah, it's really cool to have this connection. Uh, here, where the weather is beautiful, and there's uh, the fog stays at a, a safe distance, and then um, and then San Francisco. So, um, okay. Before, if you have a Bible, please turn to Mark chapter four. Uh, we'll be in verses. Uh, we'll just be continuing on in the book of Mark. Chapter uh, thirty-five is where we'll be. Now, this is really important. Before I read the text to get the context of what's happening in Mark, because Mark is written as a story. We kind of broke it up with chapter and verses and we break it up with sermons, we need to do that. But actually you're supposed to take Mark as a very fast paced story. The, the book of Mark opens, it's really fast, it like picks up and there's these ways that <clears throat> Mark tells a story that you're supposed to kind of pick up on as you're reading it. So a bit of context, last week we left off, uh, and Dale taught last week, uh, Jesus was in a boat teaching. Now the reason why he's in a boat because the crowds got so large that he had to step into the boat to teach them, and he was being pressed all around by all these people trying to, like, listen to him teach, so he's in the boat teaching, and he taught them in parables, which is a very, um, uh, a a very important and uh, common way that Jesus taught in parables, and he taught them that the kingdom of God was like a seed, this is what, this was last week, like a seed, and a good heart would accept the seed of God's word by simply believing in it. And this seed, though being vulnerable to surrounding elements, would take root and grow, and grow into something way bigger than anyone would expect. This is the kingdom of God. Jesus is teaching about the kingdom of God. And he says it's like a huge tree hiding in a tiny seed, which is really beautiful, kind of imagery and truth. So Jesus teaches this really great lesson about um, the kingdom of God being, and the word of God being a seed that takes root in our hearts. And then he pushes offshore and he tells his disciples what's next. This is what happens next. So you have to, before you read, we're about to read, you know that's the context, right? He just got done teaching a parable about the word of God. Okay, here it is, verse 35. That day, when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him, and a furious squall, like a hurricane, came up. And the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him up and said, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind and waves, Quiet, be still. And the wind, and the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked of each other, Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, I was reading this last week in John's gospel where they said, "Um, uh, would Would you please show us Jesus? a request from uh, the people to the disciples, would you please show us Jesus? And I I want to say the same thing this morning. Would you please, Lord, would you please, Holy Spirit, show us Jesus this morning? We want to see Christ, the Son of God, and all his ferocity, and all his compassion, all of his love, all of his truth, who he really is today. Would you reveal to us the Lord Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit? I submit all of myself to you I ask that you use me, in Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to show you two pictures. Um, this first picture is of uh, my mom, her name is Rosa, and uh, my daughter Juniper. My daughter was um, one and a half years old at the time of this picture. Uh, she's now um, a couple years older than that. And my, my daughter Juniper, Juni, loves my mom with a rare love and affection. All her grandkids call her nana, but Juni had to make up her own name for her. She does this to special people that she loves. She calls her Nani. We have no idea why. She just started calling her Nani, and now her name is Nani. Here's a picture of us laying my body, my mom's body, uh, to rest uh, in, the gra- in the grave of November of last year. Right after they lowered it down, this, this uh, picture is the only memory I actually have of that day. I did her memorial. I don't remember anything I said. I don't remember that day, but I, 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 when I do think of this day, I think of this picture. I remember, um, I remember the look when I was looking down as they lowered her body down to the grave. I remember looking at her casket, going, "Oh my God, that's my mom is in there." I look in this picture, um, lost and resigned and dazed, uh, and my daughter, and I was just like peeking over. The Rhea watching, just completely confused on what was going on. If you look at Junie, my daughter, she looks sad, she looks curious, but she also almost looks expectant. Like something else has to happen right now, right? Like I've seen the movies. This, This is not how things end. What is going on here? All of us, in some ways, have felt a feeling like this, of a loss so great that you didn't know how to face the world again. A loss so deep that you didn't know how to even explain it to others, let alone like your own kids. What happened? So the question became to us, my wife and I, Ashley, how do we talk about this? How do we talk about my mom's death? I bought books, We bought the books, we read the articles. And since that day, my mom's body was laid to rest. We tried to teach Junie what followers of Jesus have always taught throughout history about those who died in the faith. That one day, Jesus would return, and when that day happens, he would raise Nana's body from the grave, and we will be with Jesus and Nana again forever and ever. Now, of course, we have early documentation of this. Around the year 49, Paul writes this to a faith community in Thessalonica. It says, brothers and sisters, 1 Thessalonians 4.13, brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep is like a metaphor, a euphemism of those who died, because they're not really dead, they're asleep, because Jesus will raise their body from the grave. We believe that those who have fallen asleep will be raised with Christ. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and a trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words." This is what the church has taught about those who have died in the faith since, like, day one. But several weeks ago, my wife Ashley came to me in in tears. And she says that Junie keeps telling her that Nana is coming back soon. And that Jesus would raise her from the grave. Actually, at the end of last year at preschool, she was interviewed in her... um, her preschool yearbook, and here's a picture of her, like her, like uh, her, her page. And at the end, she answered what her special wish was. Her special wish was for Nani to come back. So Ashley and I stood in the kitchen as hot tears rolled down Ashley's cheeks, afraid of what was going to happen to Junie. Like what? When we were telling her this, what's going to happen to her? And she feared that the longer Junie waited the likelihood of Nana coming back would really hurt her trust in Jesus. What if she has, my daughter has this like Santa Claus moment and everything, and she stops believing in like anything? What if Nana doesn't come back? You can take the picture down now. What if Nana doesn't come back in like a year, and two years, three years, and then she starts believing in God at all? Why couldn't we just repeat the Christian cliche stuff that in the books tell you to do the same thing? that she died and she went to heaven and that she's happier there than here and that heaven needed another angel and that she's smiling down on us from above. Why can't we just repeat the cliches? So we're faced with a decision. And this decision that we're faced with was not just how are we going to talk about my mom's death, that was the decision, but the bigger decision, more than that, is that as Christians, how do we, or better said, how can we, take a teaching from the scriptures and actually live into it? How in the world do you take something from this book that was taught years and years and years and years and years ago and take it and apply it to your two-year-old? How do you do that? How do you take this, this theology? How do you take the scriptures and live into it through all of the storms of life? See, it's one thing to hear a good sermon. You've heard plenty of them, many of them. It's one thing to read a good section of scripture, to believe in a piece of historic theology. We have all heard them, we have all read them, we know them, we go back and listen to them on podcasts. We are inundated with good sermons. It's quite another thing to have to live it. And the text before us, Right after Jesus gives this amazing sermon on the kingdom of God and trusting in God's word and making room for God's word, taking it to heart, letting it fall and penetrate your soul, he then says, with his word, don't miss that, with his word, if you read Hebrews, it's the same word that framed the world, with his word, he said, verse 35, let us go across to the other side. You notice that? Let's get into this boat and go to the other side. They get into this boat, and as they ship off and set sail, this colossal, violent storm kicks up. Do you see what's happening here? What Jesus is doing is moving the disciples from a sermon to a situation. From a sermon to a circumstance. He taught them trust in God's word, and then with his word it says, let's go to the other side. And now they're in it. They're in the stuff of life and this right here proves to be the hardest part of following Jesus. How in the world do you take the words of scripture or the words of Jesus or even a good sermon and apply it to your life in a way that's meaningful? When the lessons and the teachings of Jesus have to move from theology to real life, this is the hardest part of following Jesus. See, a lot of us have been moved, by something Jesus says or have been a part of a good sermon or we've been moved by a morning devotional or a powerful speaker who makes clear the way of Jesus. But we all have to get up from these moments, from these words and lessons, and we have to live in the real world. And in the real world, there are storms. People die, we lose our jobs, our marriages fall upon the rocks, our kids get sick, we fight depression, and loneliness, we fear, we lose our hope, and sometimes we get, to, we get close to even losing our faith. How do the lessons we learn from the Bible or from sermons or from Jesus himself transfer into the real-life storms? This is what this text is dealing with. This text is dealing with real-life people like you and I as we enter unknowingly, because the disciples didn't know, unknowingly into storms that feel like they're going to kill us. Storms so bad that we're left questioning if God even cares about us anymore. Here's a picture of the Sea of Galilee. Anyone ever been to Israel, Sea of Galilee? A lot of hands, yes. Beautiful place. When you're on the Sea of Galilee, you can't help but thinking about all the times disciples were in, a few times, more than one, in the, on the Sea of Galilee and there's a storm, right? So, the Sea of Galilee lies nearly 700 feet below sea level and the basin surrounded by hills and mountains, as you can see in this picture. 30 miles to the northeast is Mount Hermon that rises to 9,200 feet above sea level. That's a roughly 10,000 foot drop from Mount Hermon to the Sea of Galilee, and evening winds would whip off the Mount of Hermon right down to the Sea of Galilee. So you bring this cold upper air from the mountain to clash with the warm rising air from the sea, which is a recipe for a hurricane. Now the opposite problem we have in San Francisco is that the cold air from the sea and the warm air from the valley clash and we just have Carl the Fog, right? But this is the opposite thing and it's literally a recipe for a hurricane. Look at verse 37. It says a ferocious, a furious squall Or a hurricane, another translation. This is no exaggeration. This was a serious storm that came out of nowhere. Now we have to remember, several of these disciples were experienced fishermen. They were professional fishermen. So if you've ever followed the professional fishermen on like the dangerous catch, whatever, they weather storms. Fishermen know how to go through storms. They lived, they worked on this lake. They saw their fair share of storms, of hurricanes and squalls, but this storm was different because they were dying. This was a different storm. They were like, our boat is going to capsize. We're going to be lost at sea. The water started to fill the boat and they were going down. Literally, they were perishing. And these were experts. They were mariners. They weren't being emotional when they said, we're dying. It's like when something happens in our lives, oh my gosh, I'm dying. They were literally dying. And so they wake Jesus up. And they wake him up because, I mean, this is a whole different sermon, and I, this is actually a good sermon, but I didn't come with this sermon today. The fact that Jesus is asleep on a cushion. Now he's asleep on a cushion, which is kind of miraculous in all kinds of ways. How could you sleep through this? How? What kind of pills do you take to do that? Like, that is actually incredible. Is it like a, does he have the sleep app? What is he doing to get into this kind of sleep in a storm like this, right? We all want to know this. I want to know this. But he's asleep. But the disciples don't think, wow, that's amazing. He can sleep through this. They're thinking, why are you asleep at a time like this? And then they wake him up, and they say, don't you care that we are dying? Jesus woke up and he rebuked the wind and waves. Now it says that when Jesus woke up, it doesn't say that he necessarily, in the Greek, it doesn't say that he stand up, He stood up and he raised his voice like some sort of superman and he lifted his hands to heaven and he said like we imagine Moses saying to the deceased to, to, to part. He just. It says in Greek, he simply woke up and gave a simple command. He woke up and the command had, was, had two verbs. The first one was in the present imperative and the second one was in the perfect imperative present imperative, right? You guys get that. That's, that's good stuff right there, right? <laughs> this is what this means. Jesus stood up and literally said this, be calm and stay calm. He, he just like wakes up and he like just sits up and says, be calm, stay calm. And, the, and all of a sudden, whew, it goes away. Like c- completely goes away. Jesus just says, Sit down and shut up to the storm. And in the verb, this carries the sense of the storm being muzzled. Like Jesus just puts his hand over a hurricane. Now, I can't even do this with my three-year-old. Like I tried this move, like wake up in the middle of the night, and like be calm, stay calm. This does not work, okay? This doesn't work with a three-year-old. I have no idea how it works with a hurricane. But he does this. He stands up and he says, sit down and shut up. And it does. The wind completely stops and the sea gets as calm and as smooth as glass. Now, you can't miss, obviously, the cosmic overtones here. There are cosmic divine overtones that Mark is writing into his story on purpose. Who's really the one with the power to part the sea and lead his people through on dry land? Who has the power over the sea? Who told the sea where to stop in the book of Job? You can go no further. Who said, let there be light? Who said, that the water goes here and the land goes there? Who did that? The Lord. Psalm 107. They cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of sea were hushed. They were glad when it grew calm, and then he guided them to their desired haven. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind see the power of jesus is the power of god that's what's going on here the power of jesus is the power of god the power to transform a great storm into a great calm with the word jesus reveals he has the power to do what only god who created the sea can do now, not only is there cosmic and divine overtones, but there's also, there's something that the sea represents in the ancient culture. And this first, in the, in the ancient culture, the sea was a picture of chaos. The sea was a picture of danger. The sea was a picture of evil. You get all this kind of language in the Old Testament, especially like the Leviathan, the, 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 the demonic sea creature of the ocean that stirs up chaos, right? God is over even the Leviathan, which means that what the sea represented was was this like chaotic, you can't tame it, you can't control it, it's completely random, you can't get your footing on it, it's dangerous, it's evil. This is why in Revelation, when John talks about what heaven is like, he says, and there is no more sea. Is there literally no more sea surfers are like, please God, no, let there be some ocean (laughs) in heaven symbolic. What does that mean? And there's no more chaos. And there's no more evil. And there's no more danger. See, Jesus here, his power is so impressive. Over the chaos, over the danger, over the evil, that the disciples, to the disciples, he becomes a stranger all over again. They, 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 they say, who... Who, who are you? You were just in dead. You were kind of snoring. We heard it. And you woke up, and you just told the, the wind and waves to shut up, and then they listened to you. Who are you? See, they were, the, the way that the, 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 um, the Greek reads, the, the original language reads like this, there was a great storm, that's the word, great storm, and then there was a great calm, and then there was great fear. That's how, how the Greek, it's supposed to be that way. There was a great storm, but then there was a great calm. But then the disciples had great fear. The, the text reads like this because they were better able to handle the possibility of their own death and the presence of God among them. They were, so, they were, they were kind of afraid of the, the storm, but they were really afraid of Jesus. Do you see that at the end? They had fear. Like, who is this among us that they were terrified, it says in Greek. They were terrified of Jesus. Who is this with this kind of power? This is God among them. Now, here we can't miss the point here. I want to be very, very clear. The point of this text is the presence of Jesus in our storms. That is the main point of the text. This is what everyone goes to. This is literally the main point of this text. And the, the way this story is told is to call to mind what it's like when we go through storms and all of the pain and the unknowingness that we go through in life and the, all the emotions that come up in our lives too. We, like, we can relate with the disciples here. We can relate with their fears. They can, we can relate with their, their cries. We can relate all of this. Look what the disciples ask. It's interesting. They say in verse 38, don't you Care if we drown don't you care if we drown now Jesus at the end will say why don't you why don't you not, still not have faith after everything you've seen me do why do you still have no faith now the question is this what did the disciples lose their faith in they had no faith they, they, they lacked faith so what did the disciples lose faith in when Jesus asks where is your faith how is it you still have no faith What did the disciples lose their faith in? What would you say they lost their faith in? Would you say they lost their faith in Jesus? Well, not really, because they woke him up and they asked if he cared. If they didn't believe in him anymore, you might expect them not to wake him up, because what good is he to us? We lost our faith in Jesus. We don't believe in Jesus anymore. But they did wake Jesus up. They did call on Jesus, so to speak. So then, what did they lose their faith in if it wasn't Jesus? And the answer is, they lost their faith in his love for them, in his concern for them, in his care for them. They lost their faith in that. And this strikes at the core of a follower of Jesus, because there's not probably a single one of us that hasn't felt like that before. That we, st- we still believe in Jesus. We still believe that Jesus could do something in our situations. That's actually what makes us the angriest and the most unsettled. Because we know that Jesus could find us a spouse, or Jesus could get us a job, or Jesus could take away our debt, or completely remove this temptation, or give us children, or keep our mom alive. We know that he can, but he doesn't. And that's when we lose faith. We lose faith in his love and his care for us. You must not care for me anymore. So they ask, do you not care? Now this is the cruelest question they could ask because the very reason that he was in the boat, actually the very reason he was in the world, and the reason he was going to die on a cross for them was precisely because he cared for them. Why else would he be in that boat? Why else would he not be in heaven? Because he cared. But the question remains, if he cared, then why did he let the storm almost take over them? And why does God allow storms to almost overtake us? Why does he allow some people to to be completely swallowed by storms? The answer lies in what happened at the end. Because before Jesus calmed the storm, they were afraid they were about to die. But after Jesus calmed the storms, ironically, they were terrified and even more afraid of Jesus' power. They were afraid of the storm, they were absolutely terrified of Jesus after he calmed the storm. See, when Jesus calmed the storm, they were like, oh, shoo! my goodness, thank you. Thank you for getting our backs, that was a close one. This is crazy, like, they, they didn't do that. They were like, what? They, like, stepped back from him, like, you don't know who you are. What? I, who are you? They were, they were terrified of Jesus because they realized the storm has the power, the, a storm has a power that you can't control, right? That's why you're afraid of storms. I can't control the storm. But Jesus has infinitely more power and you can't control that either. See, they were faced with two realities they couldn't control. They couldn't control the storm and they couldn't control Jesus. These disciples were completely out of control. But what's the difference between the storm and Jesus? The storm doesn't love you, but God does love you. And if God has that much power to calm the storm, don't you think that God can let you go through these storms for reasons you don't understand? See, the human challenge to God is something like this. Don't you care about us? Don't you see the suffering of our world? Don't you see my own personal suffering? Don't you care? Which meets the divine challenge, even in this text, to the human is why are you so afraid? Where is your faith? And these are two realities that, these are, these are two real questions that reflect two real realities. On one hand, the storms of our lives, which lead to why don't you care about us, God? On the other hand, divine divine assurance that God knows what he's doing, which leads to why don't you trust him? See, the ultimate issue at stake in any given circumstance is which of these two realities will you live by? Will you live by why do you why don't you care? Or will you live by I will trust? Which one will get more of your attention and your thought life? Which one will help you in decision-making? Because lastly, we see this. We see that in in the middle of this whole thing, Jesus has a plan to get the disciples to the other side of the sea. He said, let's go to the other side. Which means he knows how to get them through whatever may come on their way to the other side of the sea. Did you get that? Let's go to the other side. Which means, the reason why he's asleep, he's like, I know how to get you to the other side of the sea. I know, I told you we were going to go to the other side. I know how to get you there. It's not the love and the power of God that keeps us from storms. I need you to hear this. It's not the love and the power of God that keeps us from storms. It's precisely because God is powerful and because he does love us that he brings us through storms. This is Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. That psalm is not someone who is wandering off the path. This is someone who's following their good shepherd, and as they do, they go through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. See, following Jesus is not a refuge from the uncertainty and the insecurities of the world. And if somebody told you that or sold you that Jesus, I'm sorry, that's not the real Jesus. That's not the real Jesus of Mark. The real Jesus leads his people through storms. The first readers of this book, of Mark's book, The first Christian community to receive this book were persecuted and limped under the tyrannical Roman rule of Nero, who reduced, who were, these Christians were reduced to catacomb existence and were fed to wild beasts for sport. Yet, they get this book and they learn that Jesus knows how to get his disciples to the other side. They will go through trials and tribulations and storms And they follow a Jesus that knows how to get them to the other side. See, you see, when Jesus calmed the natural storm, he actually brewed up a storm internally in the disciples. He calmed the natural storm, but now the storm inside was we're more afraid of Jesus than we were the storm. Because I think somehow in our Christian theology, and the disciples represent us because. We are his disciples, so when you read the disciples, they represent us. We think that following Jesus, life will go a certain way. We will trend up and to the right. Life will get easier and better and will become more prosperous and more blessing. This is what we think. We become Christians and life becomes good or better. But when it doesn't, we're like, why don't you care anymore? But what happens here is that they come in contact with Jesus and they realize that Jesus is more powerful and more unimaginable than they would have ever thought possible, and they were afraid. And the point is not that Jesus is nice and manageable, and he's like a predictable force. That's not the point. That when you follow Jesus, oh, life is manageable. Life is predictable. Life is nice because Jesus is predictable and nice. The point is not even that Jesus is safe to be around. This is not safe. Getting in Jesus' boat to the other side does not prove to be safe. The point isn't in Jesus' power, in his unimaginable power to deliver us, to keep us from storms. It's that he directs all of this effort, all of this power that he has to redeem us and save us and to actually bring us through storms. With all his power to calm storms, he lovingly brings us through them. I'm gonna to move to story time. Is that cool? I have, um, my, my daughter Net is now uh, three and a half. So it's story time all the time with her. She loves stories. Dad, tell me a story. So I'm gonna tell you. I'm gonna sit on the stool because that's what you do when you tell stories. <clears throat> Jesus uh, sat, taught sitting down, so. Here we go. And I'm just going to read you a story, a little excerpt from uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Anyone familiar with that? By um, the master, C.S. Lewis. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's a scene where Mr. and Mrs. Beaver were trying to explain to the kids who Aslan the Lion was. the scene goes like this. "'Who is Aslan?' asked Susan. Aslan, said Mr. Beaver, why, you don't know? He's the king. He's the lord of the whole wood. He'll put all to right, as it says in the old rhyme, in these parts. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. In the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. You understand when you see him. But shall we see him? asked Susan. Why, daughter of Eve, that's what I brought you here for. I'm to lead you to where you shall meet him, said Mr. Beaver. Is he Is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan a man? said Mr. Beaver sternly. "'Certainly not. "'I tell you, he is the king of the wood "'and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you, know that he, that, "'Don't you know who is the king of beasts? "'Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion.'" "'Oh,' said Susan, I thought he was a man. "'Is he quite safe? "'I shall fear, I shall feel rather nervous "'meeting a lion.'" "'That you will, dearie, and make no mistake,' said Miss Beaver. "'If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan "'without their knees knocking, "'they're either braver than most or else just silly.' "'Then he isn't safe,' said Lucy. "'Safe?' said Mr. Beaver. "'Don't you hear what Miss Beaver is telling you? "'Who said anything about safe?' "'Of course he's not safe, but he's good.' He's the king, I tell you. A lot of us try to follow Jesus because we think that He's safe. We think that He'll just like take us from all the pain and all the sorrow of this life, and we won't have any anything sort of bad happen. Everything will go great with our kids. Our house will sell for way more than asking. We'll get the job. We'll trend up and to the right. We'll keep getting promotions. And that's honestly why people, a lot of people come to Jesus. But the follower of Jesus since the first century, since, the, since day one of following him, no, he's not safe at all. You follow him, you will go through storms. But as you follow him, you know that he is good and he has the power to lead you through the hardest things that you've ever and will ever go through. And one day he will make all of it right. He will set all of it right to where, in the end, there will be no more sea. There will be no more chaos. There will be no more evil, and there will be no more danger. This is what the king has promised. And I, and I guess my question to you is, do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus is good? If so, put your faith in that and keep it there. No matter what storm comes your way. Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? What Mark is trying to tell us in this entire book is that he's the Christ, the Son of God. Would you stand with me as we pray? Lord, life can be unimaginably painful for all sorts of reasons, not just death. But theres I know that there's extreme depression in this room and loneliness in this room. And kids are at this age where we don't even know if we can connect with them anymore and we're, we're thrust into like this deepest storm of our lives. And it can happen for all kinds of different reasons. And, and life can be unimaginably scary. And yet in the midst of that, you promised to be with us in the boat. And you want us to have faith that we can have the peace that you have, to, to be at rest and at peace through these times. And so I pray, I pray this, this morning that our faith would be put squarely upon the terrifying, loving power of Jesus. And that for some of us, we be reintroduced to you all over again. Who is this that the wind and waves obey him? Who is this that can get us to the other side? You are Christ the Lord. We worship you. In Jesus' name.